This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Episode 5 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg of biznews.com. In this episode, we draw on our partner, the Wall Street Journal, for a report on a potential COVID-19 catastrophe in relatively defenseless Africa. Discoveries South Africa's chief executive, Hilton Kellner, unpacks the impact of the pandemic on health and life assurers, and he explains how the reaction to this pandemic is sure to change our society. There's good news for South Africans as a local company gifts enough of the malaria drug chloroquine phosphate to help 40,000 potential patients. The drug has been effective in Asia to reduce hospital time for COVID-19 sufferers. Scientist Professor Alan Whiteside provides perspective on the latest developments, including the UK's bet on antibody tests, and we'll hear of a New York City healthcare system that's on the verge of collapse. First, today's COVID-19 headlines. Global infections of COVID-19 rose above half a million Thursday, with Italian deaths surpassing 7,500 from almost 75,000 confirmed cases, the highest in the world. Infections have mushroomed there for the past few weeks, making Italy the epicenter of the European area of this crisis. But although infections rose by 5,000 on Wednesday, it represents a slowdown to 7.5% daily growth. That's in stark contrast to the United States, where confirmed infections rose 48% Wednesday to 69,197. South Africa's infections, over 700 Wednesday, are growing at 28% a day, consistent with the experience of other countries in the early stage of the pandemic. The 21-day lockdown from midnight Thursday is designed to flatten South Africa's infection growth curve. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson describes testing kits which show whether someone has had coronavirus as a game-changer for a country which yesterday had 9,640 confirmed infections and almost 500 deaths. Johnson says over 3 million of the kits which test immunity will be available from Amazon and Boots within weeks. Scientists believe around 80% of those who contract COVID-19 are only mildly affected, but because they generate immunity, would be safe to return to work and get the economy going again. South African businesses are reacting in unusual ways to this crisis. Construction group WBHO yesterday cancelled the payment of an 80 cents a share dividend, retaining cash of around 50 million rand that would have been distributed to shareholders. Discovery has sent 8,000 staff home, having prepared for the crisis for the past two and a half months, while recruitment company AdCorp announced a 30% drop in its fees for as long as the crisis lasts. U.S. weekly jobless claims surged by almost 15 times from 282,000 to 3.283 million, an unprecedented increase in a single week. Stanlib economist Kevin Ling says there is a close correlation between jobless claims and unemployment, which on these numbers looks set to surge to between 6% and 7% from virtually nothing in the past. Wall Street shrugged off the news, as did the JSE, 
both markets continuing the recovery that began on Monday. Biznews.com's partner, The Wall Street Journal, has been delivering top-notch content on COVID-19, much of it available in front of the paywall and on Biznews.com itself. Here, Anne-Marie Fertoli, host of the What's News podcast, examines a potential African catastrophe. Across the world, developing nations are beginning to reckon with the coronavirus. But many of them are tackling it without the institutions and medical access of more developed countries. That's creating daunting challenges as they work to fight the spread of the disease. Joining me now from Johannesburg, South Africa, is Wall Street Journal Africa Bureau Chief Joe Parkinson. Joe, let's talk about some of those areas where we are just starting to see spikes in the number of coronavirus cases. South Africa has just announced a 21-day lockdown, and the virus has now been reported in more than 40 countries across the continent. What can you tell us about the particular challenges in combating the pandemic across Africa? Well, South Africa is where I'm calling you from right now, from Johannesburg, and Johannesburg is the epicenter of this uh, outbreak. The government announced just today that the number of cases have risen above 700, and that's a six-fold increase in a week. And although South Africa is now the country that's recorded uh, the most confirmed cases of the virus, it's indicative of a trend across the continent. And that is for the last three months, people in the developing world and in Africa especially have been watching nervously. Um, but, you know, with with a hope, I suppose, that they would be spared the worst of this virus. And until now, the numbers have borne that out. Uh, unfortunately, in the last week, we seem to be going into a slightly different phase where the virus is spreading very fast. And in a number of countries, uh, we have more than a dozen countries in Africa, we have domestic transmission. And it seems like now parts of the world that were the least prepared to take on this virus with healthcare systems, as you mentioned, that were already overwhelmed are now about to face the biggest challenge that most people can remember. You already mentioned and we talked about seeing hospitals in developed nations, including Italy and the United States, becoming overwhelmed by the number of coronavirus cases. In developing nations, as you point out, they are oftentimes just beginning to address this epidemic with structures and institutions that are already overwhelmed. That's right. I mean, there's a uh, there's a statistic in the story that I think is incredibly striking, and that is in Italy, where we've seen one of the world's most developed, most sophisticated, highly funded public health care systems being completely overwhelmed. They have 41 doctors for every 10,000 patients. The continental Af- uh, average across Africa is two doctors for every 10,000 patients. Just to put it into perspective, the, it's very uneven and we should be aware of, of generalizing too much about the whole continent because countries like South Africa have responded very, very quickly and they have quite developed healthcare system. But there's other countries where it really is already overwhelmed, as you say. In South Sudan, which has been at war for five years, there's 24 isolation beds for the whole country. That's 13 million people. In Malawi, there's 17 million population, only 25 isolation beds. It's quite hard to even get your head around those figures, really, when you're looking at the way that the West is responding to this pandemic. The kind of resources, whether it's fiscal or what's happening with the expansion of healthcare and redeploying healthcare workers, you know, the tools that we're seeing deployed in the West, which are struggling to combat the pandemic, do not exist uh, across much of the developing world. So this is, again, why I think just this week, as the numbers seem to be growing exponentially, more policymakers, more presidents and prime ministers from the West, as well, of course, from the developing world are, are calling for emergency aid. 
Joe, we actually spoke to a humanitarian aid worker in Uganda. Her name is Jessie Mariniello. Here's what she had to say about what she's seeing on the ground there. So I live very near Soweto slum, which I'm in Kampala, and those people are stacked on top of one another. There is no, uh, there's no ability to have social distancing. And then the water, people barely have enough money to buy enough water for their daily needs on a good day. And a lot of people aren't having soap. Um, they are taking precautions. One thing that Uganda has been doing well, I think, is there are washing stations, like at the markets, and they're being really vigilant as you're walking through maybe a market space, that you're washing your hands. They don't allow you entrance until you've washed your hands. But, of course, that's only your hands. That's not what comes out of your mouth or anything. Um, But this country is, uh, the majority of this country is, they're not necessarily in the slums, but they are in situations where water and soap, that simple thing might be an issue from the start. But also large families living in small spaces is true for most most families. Um, So, yeah, there's a stacking effect happening here that concerns me a lot. This speaks to some of those precautions we're hearing about here in the West. What we consider maybe common sense, like washing your hands with soap and water, the reality is not everyone has the access or ability to do that. That's absolutely right. And, um, you know, over the past 20 years, during period of economic globalization, Africa has urbanized rapidly. And 60% of uh, the African population now lives in cities and 60% of those urban populations live in informal settlements, in townships or slum areas, some of which have very poor sanitation. Many people live without plumbing. You know, water is a very important commodity that costs money. And, you know, the idea that uh, you can wash your hands you know, every few hours that you'll be in a place where you can do that, that you'll be in a place where you have access to hand sanitizer, let alone whether you'll be in a place whether you get where you get access to um, to quality health care and ventilators and the kind of instruments and, uh, you know, infrastructure that, that, that we're all talking about now in the developed world. It's a very, very different context. And so there are mitigating factors. You know, there are Africa has a very, very young population. The average age in Africa is just 20. And we know that young people are responding much better to the virus. We don't know, but there's some evidence to suggest that hotter climates might be more hostile for the virus, which, of course, for a lot of the countries across Africa may work in their favor, may be a mitigating factor. But then there's also the fact that people with weaknesses, people with immunodeficient um, diseases are particularly exposed and Africa has, you know, has been through healthcare crises recently that could play into that, not least uh, HIV AIDS. A big part of the response in the West has been based on health officials' guidance and media reports about how the pandemic has spread. When we talked to Jesse, that was one of the major differences she mentioned for Uganda. People are taking it very seriously, but I don't know that they, they don't have access to the news, to international news. They don't necessarily have money for data, for watching videos and news clips on Facebook or wherever. So um, the instructions given by the Ugandan government are just very basic. To wash your hands, if you're sick, don't go into public, to avoid public transportation. It's very, very, very basic. Joe, what do you think about that? Uganda is one of the African countries that until recently was proudly saying that it managed to avoid any cases of the coronavirus. 
uh, the government instituted quite quickly travel bans on some of the countries that had the most confirmed cases. Schools and universities were closed and there were other restrictions imposed by the president, Yoweri Museveni, who's been in power for more than 30 years. But there were a lot of people inside the country who were skeptical uh, about the numbers and dubious that the amount of people being tested seemed to be incredibly low. Uh, that conversation seems to have gone to the mainstream now with uh, the most recognizable opposition politician in the country, a former rapper called Bobby Wine, releasing a song today called The Coronavirus Alert, uh, a hip hop song where he talks about all the steps that Ugandans should take to try and protect themselves against the virus and questions implicitly whether the government's doing enough to protect their population. That was our Africa Bureau Chief Joe Parkinson speaking to us from Johannesburg, South Africa. Joe, thank you so much. Thank you. Hilton Kellner is the Chief Executive of Discovery for Southern Africa. Hilton, I know you, you're a man of numbers and you've been watching, no doubt, the, the uh, expansion, as many people are, uh, of this virus on the John Hopkins website. I see today it's now... 475,000. Uh, America has gone up 46% overnight in the infections there. Exponentiality seems to be kicking in. Uh, good day, Alec. Yeah, I think the, the, the sort of the numbers when you, when you stack them up, um, obviously, obviously, uh, do look frightening. I read an interesting paper, um, that in fact what you're seeing is statistically, um, an aggregation of normal distributions, in fact. So, so while in, in totality, the, the sort of the numbers take on what's called a, a Gaussian distribution. In essence, what you're seeing is, is multiple normal distributions coming on stream simultaneously, and, and that's the effect that we then see. And the U.S. is sort of a, a function of that where you've got multiple markets that are now going through that, uh, going through that curve. So hopefully each market follows sort of a, a similar curve to what we've seen in countries like South Korea, Singapore, China, where where it, it then it then sort of levels off in a in, in a more normal fashion, but in the early stages, as they sort of stack up, you get this uh, you get this 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 massive exponential effect that we that we're observing now, including South Africa, where the overnight number is 28 percent, so in line with that 30 percent day daily growth. Yeah, very much so, and and I think credit to the South African uh, Health Ministry and the approach that they've taken. You know, we're doing extensive testing. So you will you will see that that effect coming through. That's that's really to be expected, and I think and that's obviously what's necessitated the uh, the lockdown that we that we're about to enter. Extensive testing for the uh, virus, but what about people recovering? Obviously, it's very early days in South Africa, but there's already uh, talk about trying to trying to test people who've had the virus so that they can go back to work, almost get a, a clean bill of health. Is that something that's possible in this country? Uh, so we aren't seeing that just yet, and uh, but it is it is something obviously that I think in in other parts of the world that uh, that is uh, that is coming on stream, and many people would have had the the virus without really experiencing really serious uh, symptoms, and so so it is a, an important part of the cycle to be able to to be able to understand that. How does that work? That people get the virus but don't show anything. So I'm not a I'm not a clinician, um, but the the studies that have been done. In some of the other countries, in particular, in particular China, indicate that that of the people who've uh, who presented, not not all present the same symptoms. So they're seeing about 70 or 80 percent um, would have uh, a fever and and dry cough and and other other symptoms like fatigue, 
but, uh, but not everybody has the same symptoms. Obviously, the most serious symptoms are, are respiratory in nature, uh, tight chest and uh, inability to, to, to breathe. But they vary and, and obviously highly correlated with age and other comorbidities. And that, that's, what we, that's what we're seeing. Some people may have it and, and really just experience it as, a, as they would a, a fairly, fairly minor flu. And, and obviously, that's what you do. That's what you hope for. You have to think about health insurers and companies like Discovery who are suddenly many of their members might be sick from something else, but whereas they they might have just gone to bed and, and had a disparate in the past, they're now going to be concerned about it. What's the impact on you? We're seeing a number of fascinating impacts um, from an actuarial perspective and a behavioral perspective. We're seeing a, we've seen a significant increase in GP consultations. Um, so we have seen a spike in people having obviously concern around what would ordinarily be a, a, a flu or or other sort of uh, common virus. We're starting to see a significant decrease in more elective surgeries in, uh, in hospital as people shy away from, from, uh, from hospitals and, and obviously try to free up the resources of, of frontline care, which is, which is important. So we see the sort of this, this dual effect coming through within, uh, within, within our client base. We've also seen other behavioral changes, like obviously fewer and fewer people going to gym and other areas where they may be exposed to, to, uh, to high-density populations, and, and as we've seen the, the sort of social distancing and self-quarantine, uh, we're seeing people drive uh, much, uh, much lower distances, and we, we're able to monitor that through, through our customer base. So we're seeing, we're seeing the effect play out in, in many different ways across, uh, across the business. What about people going to gym less? Part of the whole Vitality program is to encourage them to change to a healthy lifestyle. Are you adjusting your requirements? We've, we've almost created what we call in Vitality at Home, a fully sort of customized version of Vitality that, that's, that's, that's really tailored towards members being able to exercise and encouraging them to exercise while they are at home. It's a, it's a critical part, we think, of overall health and well-being and, and mental, mental health. So the first thing that we did was we immediately froze the sort of the requirement for our members to attend gym at least 36 times a year to, to maintain their, their benefits, that minimum requirement. So that was frozen a couple of weeks ago already as we started to, to see uh, COVID-19 emerge in, in the country. What, we, what we've now done, we've got an incredibly popular program in Active Rewards where over half a million members engage every week and try and achieve uh, their, their sort of physical activity goals in order to earn a, a coffee um, or other rewards such as discovery miles what we've done there is we've uh, we've reduced the target goal for the week to to 300 points from 900 so it's a significant reduction it basically implies that people should be walking about 5000 steps a day in order to maintain in maintain some level of activity or they could um, use one of the uh, services where we're streaming uh, exercise classes online encouraging our members to, to exercise at home um, and if they've got a wearable device, then they'll be able to earn points, uh, points through that. Uh, we've tried to really ensure that people are encouraged to be active uh, at this time. And then we've also, we've also changed some of the rewards to, to focus more on, on uh, areas like healthy food and, uh, and, and pharmacy uh, uh, goods like uh, healthy care and, uh, and so forth. So, so we've really customized the product to, to, to be fit for purpose for people staying at home. It's early days, but that streaming is fascinating. I know with my own yoga studio, they've started streaming classes as well. How have you seen the take-up? 
I was watching this morning, for example, one of our instructors uh, uh, who uh, who was who was streaming a class um, for Vitality, and uh, at the time there were about 400 people participating live, and and hopefully we'll we'll see that that climb to the thousands very very quickly. From a, a more philosophical and a broader perspective, this surely is going to accelerate the move towards the fourth industrial revolution, if you like, that just take that as an example. One person can stream a class, 400 people can uh, can attend, whereas you you wouldn't have a, that kind of attendance at a at a normal gym. Yeah, I think it's changing. It's changing the way we do business everywhere. Uh, you know, financial advisors are now uh, consulting and advising clients, and it's an important time. You know, if you think about the volatility in the markets and the need for for insurance in particular, the, you know, medical insurance and life insurance at this time. Are more relevant than than probably ever before, and they but they they operating offer, offering advice um, using video conferencing um, as a as a primary communication mechanism, and uh, and we've had to uh, cater for that as well with full sort of digital applications, ability to process uh, new client applications, uh, fully uh, fully digitally, um, and and I think it, it will change the way that 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 we that we operate for uh, for a very very long time. So one doesn't think about that, but presumably there must have been a spike uh, with people worrying, well, this is a, a deadly disease, particularly if you're older. Have you seen that? Have you seen uh, more inquiries, say, for life insurance? We've seen probably a steady and an increasing uh, trend over the last few weeks. The, the need is, is, is real, and I think people, people are, responding, are responding to that. So yeah, I mean, certainly on on from a medical scheme perspective, we we've seen a spike and and in some of our life insurance areas as well, particularly amongst professionals. And I think it's a it's it's been it's been identified as as a very very clear need for them. But from a financial point of view, if you're now having more demand on your uh, health insurance, and clearly there, or one would presume that there is a higher risk of mortality with this new COVID-19 coming in on the life insurance. Do you have to adjust your rates that you charge? Do you have to uh, maybe reduce the amount of people you accept? I think the, the underwriting that we apply, um, we, uh, we've kept fairly consistent. And, and it, you know, I think you, as an insurer and insurers around the world, um, part of the reserving requirements take into account things like pandemics. So, so you don't expect these to happen on a regular basis, but when they do, you know, I think the industry is, is actually quite well equipped to deal with this from a, a financial um, solvency um, and liquidity perspective. So we don't anticipate much change from, from that perspective. And I think it's also important to, to bear in mind that, uh, that while, while COVID presents a, a unique and unprecedented challenge in terms of infection rates and impact, uh, particularly for for the elderly and and those that that uh, that have multiple chronic conditions, you know the the core market for insurance is typically people in their 30s to 50s, and in that segment, the uh, the the sort of the, the mortality and morbidity impact um, hasn't been observed to to be that material. If uh, we had a different president in this country, and if the decision was to not send everybody home. Uh, for the 21-day lockup, would that have had much of an impact from a and, and really just looking at at the uh, at an actuarial perspective on your business? I think it would have had an impact on 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 South Africa and and broader society. There's 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 no doubt. 
you know, I think the, the real impact is going to be felt in healthcare delivery and the, and the facilities. And, and so that's, that's really where, where it's important to free up uh, capacity and to, to ensure that, that we've got sufficient capacity to, to actually um, handle the, the volumes that we anticipate are going to be moving into, into the, the facilities. From our perspective, you know, we, we started as an employer probably about a month ago with, uh, with a, a range of, a range of sort of initiatives to protect our staff, to ensure business continuity and, uh, and protect health professionals, our partners, et cetera. So, so we've, uh, we've really been uh, gearing up for this for some time already, all the way to, to sort of having a uh, parking lot full of, of hired cars to ensure that our staff uh, who are performing essential functions over this period are able to move to and from uh, the office uh, without using public transport. So it's been a massive logistical exercise. You know, we've sent, we've sent home about 8,000 staff who are now working from home within, uh, within our existing infrastructure, and we, we sort of we continue with minimal disruption. And, and so I think, you know, from an organizational perspective, uh, we've been able to manage it. But I think in the absence of taking these steps, um, the healthcare system would have, uh, would have really been under immense, immense pressure and far more than, than, uh, than what we, uh, we hopefully will experience given the, given the, the steps taken by the president. Just from a practical perspective of sending 8,000 people home, do you buy them laptops? Do you give them data? <laughs> Um, we've, we, we've been offer, you know, we've been operating, uh, with a consistent sort of, uh, workforce of about a thousand people from home for, for some time now. So, uh, claims processors and, and a number of people who can operate from home. And, and in fact, you know, it suits a lot of people who, who seek flexible working hours. Um, and, uh, and, and obviously it makes sense from our perspective just in terms of, of, uh, cost efficiency. Um, so, so, so it's something we have had in place. Many people operate with laptops. We've got a lot of people with home setups who would have desktops. Um, the, uh, the, the sort of connectivity, uh, is, is always, is always a challenge, but, but in most cases, uh, we're using, we're using fiber or, or reverse billing on, uh, on hard lines to ensure, ensure connectivity. Over this period, um, we, uh, we obviously have to be a bit more flexible. And so, so we are using, uh, mobile data um, as well, but but in essence uh, we we continue to operate and and the, the sort of the infrastructure is, is set up for that. Discovery's whole model is about behavioural change for the better. Now, given what society is going through on COVID nineteen, when we look at the other end, will we be changing behaviour for the better? Eric, I think I think COVID nineteen is going to change the entire society. And, uh, and, and the way that, the way that we, the way that we operate, I think to, uh, that's what's been seen in, in area, in countries like China where the, the sort of the behaviors do change post, um, post COVID, even, you know, as people start to get back to work and, uh, and return to, to normal. That, that, that's inevitable. Um, but hopefully we'll, we'll learn a lot of lessons in terms of how we work, how we operate and how we approach healthcare in, uh, in general and how we think about the sort of, the uh, the collective good, you know, I think this is one of the one of the, the key learnings um, from uh, from this process is that, and it's to your point around exponentiality. You know, if you can if you can stop one person from infecting many others, you have a you you really have a, a massive impact in terms of the entire system, and uh, and I think hopefully that's something that that we'll we'll take away from this. 
Well, there's been a lot of talk about uh, chloroquine phosphate being perhaps the one drug that has already been identified in the uh, well to fight against COVID-19. The local company in uh, in South Africa, Orsil Pharmaceuticals, uh, the largest black-owned pharmaceutical company, uh, presumably has the license for chloroquine phosphate because they've just made a donation to the South African government of half a million tablets. Chief Executive Sahel Ghani joins us now. Sahel, let's just dwell a little bit on this this product. Chloroquine phosphate been around for a long time and previously used to fight malaria. Uh, that's right, Alec. I mean, this drug has been around for over 70 years to fight malaria. And there's been a number of evidence that shows that patients spend le- uh, less time in hospitals and the amount, amount of time in a patient remains infections is far less when a patient does contract COVID-19. But I might just add something to that. More than 80% of the population doesn't need this drug. This drug is used for patients who have underlying conditions, maybe like heart or lung conditions, then it's required, or or they've severely impaired with this disease. So so where has it been used successfully against COVID-19? I mean, if you look at the clinical uh, guidelines for the clinical management of COVID-19, it has been quite successfully used in China, South Korea, as well as Belgium, and also is in treatment protocols in countries like France, Australia, and even the USA. But presumably only used under uh, very strict conditions. Uh, we, we heard the story, I think the whole world heard the story of uh, somebody in America who uh, took some, something related to chloroquine phosphate and died, as did his wife. You see, I cannot comment because I haven't heard the story, but you are right that this will be only given by, by physicians and doctors, uh, and they will be only given at hospital. This will be only available to the state and will be only used in hospitals, and, those, and the decision whether to use it or not will be done by healthcare professionals. That sounds like it could be dangerous, like most drugs, if you take too much of it uh, when you, you don't need it. I agree with you. I mean, that's why we say go to your doctor. They always look at the risk benefit and they take a decision whether to give it or not. You say it's been around for 70 years. Uh, It it seems a a welcome thing that it's working against COVID-19. Who thought to use it in the first place? I think it started first in China because, as we know, the, the epidemic started in China. And I think they must have been experimenting with a number of drugs. And I think chloroquine, I think, gave them the best results. And I think, as you are aware, that already one, which was the epicenter of the epidemic, these restrictions being lifted. So they have been quite successful in, in dealing with this pandemic. How much chloroquine are they using in Wuhan or have they been using there? If you look at the treatment guidelines, it's simple that initially, and I'm going to come a bit technical, so please forgive me. No worries. Uh, that... Uh, initially, the, the healthcare professional gives 10 milligrams per kilo, depending on your weight, for the first two days, and thereafter 5 milligrams per kilo daily for one day. And so that uh, is helping people uh, recover more quickly from COVID-19? As I said earlier, that uh, patients sp- spend less time in hospital, reduces the time in hospital. And I think this is very important, Alex, for everyone to understand is that 
We have a finite number of hospital beds, about 7,500 critical beds in, in the country. We want the patients to go out as soon as possible. Otherwise, imagine if this, God forbid, this pandemic hits a majority of our population. So what you need is a drug that can reduce the time of patients being in hospital. Otherwise, they can be a, quite a crisis in South Africa. But how much time does it reduce their hospital stay? So what it happens is that it, you, it reduces the time by, by up to six days. So you can spend less than six days in a, in a hospital. But obviously it varies between patients and to patient. Six days of what? Uh, so in other words, how long would you spend in hospital without chloroquine? See, there is no evidence to state how long one has it. I mean, it depends on your... Uh, how long have you been in hospital, what your underlying condition is. I mean, you can spend weeks, it can be three or four weeks, but what we know, it does reduce the time. So these 500,000 tablets that you've now given to the South African government, how many patients will they help? I think it will help, depending on the dose, in up to 20,000 uh, patients. However, we have decided again to donate another half a million tablets. I mean, uh, that will be done in a press release soon. So we are donated in total a million uh, tablets, and they will can treat up to 40,000 patients. But I hope, Alec, that it doesn't come to that. So, Hal, presumably you can't just go to government and give them a whole bunch of, of polls. You've got to go through some kind of a, a formal process. How does that work in South Africa? What actually happened is because, as you said, the drug is, is, is not used for this uh, indication, so when we heard, one of the things that we heard what the president said is how does private and public sector play in beating this epidemic? We went and approached the Department of Health and said, look, this is, we can bring the, this drug. But the most important catalyst for this is we saw it was published in the South African guideline for the clinical management of COVID-19 on the 19th of March. We went to see them on the 20th and said, Austral is here willing to help uh, the government since you have published it in the guidelines and we want to do our bit in donating the product. So we went through all the protocol with the Department of Health and thereafter with the regulatory body, as you know, it's called SAPRA, the South African Health Product Regulatory Authority. And I have to tell you, they have been quite positive in the engagements and they expeditiously uh, approved the drug uh, within five days. Well, five days, that's, that's uh, incredible. But I guess it shows that it is a crisis. Do you guys actually make the drug here? We don't make the drug here because, you know, South Africa doesn't have uh, malaria indication. Uh, it comes from one of our partner companies in India. Mm-hmm. And they presumably aren't charging you. Uh, if they you, are charging us. They're charging you and you're giving it to the country for free. That's good news. Yes, I mean, they do charge us. Uh, but one of the things I have to tell you is that that there is such a demand for this product uh, that there is a critical shortage of this uh, uh, drug in the world. In fact, India has banned the export of this product anywhere in the world. However, we basically got a commitment from the Indian government and we will have the stock within the next three weeks. So we said that I'm a, I'm a South African at heart. I was born here. My parents were born here. And we said we have to do something and secure the supply. And I'm glad to say we have. This is so interesting. So it's uh, the relationship between the Indian government and, and South Africa or India and South Africa is, in this case, enabled you to bring in drugs to the country that India has banned from exporting elsewhere because they've got their own issues. 
That's right. And I think because of our partner that we have for the last 20 years, I think there is an understanding to ensure that we must do something for our country. So Hal Gunny is the chief executive of Austel Pharmaceuticals, and as he's uh, just told us, there's a million of those chloroquine phosphate tablets that will be coming to the South African uh, Department of Health free of charge. Uh, I guess it's the cost is not the big thing. It's the access that is probably more important given the demand now for this drug. Alan Whiteside joins us now from the UK, but a well-known uh, South African. Uh, Alan, before we go into the topic of our conversation today, uh, your connection with South Africa goes back many years. Yes, indeed. I, I actually grew up in Swaziland and was educated at a school there called Waterford Kamslaba, then went to the United Kingdom to avoid military service because I wasn't prepared to kill for apartheid. And then I returned to South Africa in 1983 to join the University of Natal, as it then was. And had uh, quite a bit of crossing swords over the whole HIV-AIDS saga here. Absolutely. It was one of the most demoralizing episodes in our lives for scientists. We thought we were talking common sense, and it turned out that uh, people weren't listening, and they had other agendas. Well, as a scientist, uh, you must be seeing what's happening with COVID-19 with a, a combination of, of fascination, I guess, and horror. Where are we now in the disaster? Well, I think the answer has to be, as with so many things, there isn't one size fits everyone. If we look at the epidemic around the world, what we see is that in China, Japan, South Korea, there are signs that it's under control albeit at unacceptably high levels in some countries. And I think it's absolutely fascinating that the Japanese numbers are now climbing now that we know that they aren't going to have the Olympics, which says something about the politics of data. So the first cluster is, is in Asia, but it's a cluster that seems to be controlled. The second one is in Europe, where it is absolutely out of control. I mean, we're just watching the numbers climb to an unbelievable level. Uh, 74,386 today, according to the Johns Hopkins website in Italy. And then the third major area is uh, North America. And the U.S. now has 70,000 uh, infections, and those continue to climb at the same rate. What is really interesting, though, is the lower levels of infection across Africa and South America, which may be a combination of factors from climate to air links. So I pulled the numbers out from yesterday to today, and the overnight growth is 48% in the U.S. Mm. That's extraordinary. Uh, we, we understand that in the early stages of, of this uh, pandemic, a rate of about 30%, which is where South Africa is tracking at the moment, is normal. Why mm. would uh, the, the United States be so much higher at this point? It's quite simply a lack of leadership. Uh, people are... Uh, not getting the leadership at the national level that they need, or should we say the federal level that they need, uh, which leaves that the lo leaves the local state level people trying to uh, trying desperately to to take care of this uh, crisis. But you've got to have a united uh, government to deal with it, and that, by the way, isn't what is what we didn't have in the UK until quite recently. I was talking yesterday with David Shapiro, whose daughter lives in New York City, and, and what was quite strange is that although this is the epicenter of the United States' pandemic, they're still allowing people 
to leave the uh, leave the city and and go off to other parts of the country, which sounds really strange. Yes, it does. And uh, Deborah Briggs, who's one of the ladies, was the one lady who stands behind Donald Trump at these briefings and has looked increasingly stressed over the past few weeks, um, is of the, as I understood it, was also puzzled over this decision. I mean, we really do need to go into complete lockdown, which is what we have in the UK. Uh, you're allowed to go out to walk, uh, exercise, run, walk or whatever. Otherwise, you must stay at home. And South Africa starts that Africa this starts evening. That. Do you think that's the, the solution? Again, I don't think it's a case of a one size fits all. I think what you've got is in the UK and in the rich countries where people can stock up with food, where they're not living cheek by jowl, you could move to this lockdown. And, and that's, that's common sense public health. I'm not certain how it works out in Kailicho or Izamayetu or, uh, Water. I, I really don't know. I think we've got a huge social experiment. It, it is a public health solution. Is it a socially possible solution? I really don't know. You mentioned the data is political. Let's just explain that, if you would, elaborate on, on how data can be political. So, well, the first way you can make data political is not to test, because if you're not testing, you can't report cases. And uh, there has been a suggestion that the amount of testing being done in China has gone down quite considerably. So their caseload has stayed pretty constant at just under 82,000. On the other hand, maybe that's a good thing because it does give the Chinese people a sense that the uh, state has it under control. The um, Japanese data uh, is, oh, yeah, well, no, well, fine, uh, because I think they were desperately trying to keep their numbers down for the... uh, Olympic Games, which they thought that we're still going to hold. African data, I think that's more a factor of the lack of testing kits than the uh, inability, than the lack of an epidemic. But it may be the lack of an epidemic, and we can't know that because we've got no idea what the testing kits are looking like and if they're getting there. Having said that, there's something I must just explain very, very quickly. What we have at the moment is test kits that pick up people who are infected. In other words, the virus is active in their bodies. What we don't have, and we're desperate for it, is test kits which will tell us if anybody has had the virus, because in theory, those people should have immunity, and in theory, they don't need to go through the same processes as people who haven't had the virus. And scientists, so this is the gold standard that we're desperate to see. Scientists are scurrying to get us kits that will tell us if you've had the virus. Is there any progress on that front? Absolutely. I would say we'll have the out in the next month, perhaps even sooner. The rational part about it, that is that if people are, are cleared to go back to work, they can start getting the economy going again. The, that, that, would be abs- that would be fantastic because, as you said, people will be able to start getting back to normal lives. As it is at the moment, we're all sort of on tender hooks. Will I get it? Won't I get it? Unless I've had it. And if you take just the... Uh, Global figures, we've got uh, 472,109 today, according to Johns Hopkins, of whom 114,000 have recovered. Now, those people are able to make a contribution to the society in which the rest of us cannot because we don't know our status. And this, of course, we're dead. Those antibody tests, are they uh, likely to get to South Africa anytime soon? I think there'll be a rollout to get them out as far as possible. I mean, the one thing about South Africa and our unfortunate HIV epidemic 
is we really understand testing. So this would be like the HIV test where you positive or negative. This would be you've had COVID or you haven't had it. And that we have the ability, we have the infrastructure, we have the knowledge to be able to roll it out if we can get them to uh, to the country. Alan, you did mention John Hopkins University and uh, that they are putting out these numbers. I watch it every day as well. How come they've become the global source for the reporting? That's a very good question. And I think the answer is uh, because they were the first there. Secondly, because they are a model of simplicity. You pull up the dashboard, you can see exactly what's going on. You can focus in, uh, let's say, into the United States and you can see what's going on by state. So it's an easy site to use. So well done to Johns Hopkins. They've done a brilliant job. There are other, other ones, but not no other one that gives the level of information uh, that I want at a, at a glance. And where are they pulling their data from? Well, now, this is where we run into one of the uh, problems with data, uh, which is it's people reporting to them, which is why China has consistently stuck at just under 82,000, why Djibouti has got 11, because you're relying on the, oh, uh, Haiti has got uh, eight cases at the moment, Eswatini, four cases. You're relying on reports coming from the public health authorities in those countries. So if they don't report, you haven't got the data, which is why academics like myself need to be saying, "Uh uh-uh, you're not reporting data. But presumably there's enough there for us to be able to make decisions, as South Africa has done with the lockdown. First of all, 21 days, is that the right term? Well, the option is always to extend it, and that's 21 days is what uh, Boris Johnson has placed on the United Kingdom. So I think it's probably enough, and I think we are going to see curves flattening, but not perhaps the global curve, but country curves will start to flatten. So... 21 days is a good start. My word, it's going to be difficult for you, for me, and for everyone, though. But you say it might be enough. Uh, scientifically, why? Does this actually s- destroy the virus in that period? Oh, no, no. I think uh, it's, a, it's a little bit more uh, complicated than that. Basically, if we have a 21-day lockdown and nobody goes and gets reinfected, then what we're going to see is that the epidemic will splatter to to a halt because we need to understand a few other little epidemiological things so basically the 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 key things are the the number of the r number which is how many people will be infected uh from other from an individual case uh so if if i'm infected and i infect two other people then the epidemic will carry on if i infect four other people it will carry on faster If I can cut it down so that I don't infect anybody else, then the numbers will start to decline quite rapidly. And we think that the number of days involved in this is actually quite quite small. If you extrapolate from where we are today and if the Chinese are telling us the truth, in other words, that political data that you mentioned, uh, we take that question out of it, how much longer might a country like South Africa be visited with this pandemic? Mm. You know, that's a very good question. And there's good news and bad news, uh, I'm afraid, as with so many things. On the good news side, we've got some really amazing actions. I mean, well done, Cyril, for the lockdown. That should make a difference, provided people do stick to it. The bad news is that we think that this may, well, we don't know. 
it is possible that this is a uh, winter disease and that as it heats up in the north, uh, we will have a less uh, favorable atmosphere for for the virus to survive. And that would mean that, as we see with flus, it may well become a southern epidemic in, as you move into your autumn and winter. Having said that, of course, forewarned is forearmed. So maybe we can prevent that from happening. But your question is how long? And the answer to that one has to be, I don't know. And the mortality rate, we know that in South Korea, it's down to 0.6. In Italy, it's a multiple of that. The United States is also starting to climb in that area. Uh, what is the, the best guess at the moment for this number? Well, again, I think what we have to understand is that it is a guess, not the answer you're looking for. It's between 1 and 5%. Uh, it'll depend on the levels of treatment that people get. It will depend on how they were infected. Uh, the Chinese doctor who died so early on in the epidemic, I mean, here was a young, fit, healthy man before he started working on the epidemic. I suspect he was exposed multiple times, and that's why his immune system eventually just couldn't take it. There's also the question of where the virus lodges in your in your body. If it's in the upper respiratory tract, you get your sore, sore throat. If it's in your lower respiratory tract, you're going to end up with a pneumonia. So it's going to depend on the ages of people. Uh, no one is immune to this virus, but uh, you're more likely to get seriously ill if you're older, it, particularly if you have comorbidities. Comorbidities, worthy of a few words of explanation, that means that you're old and you're living with other diseases, so hypertension, diabetes, cancer, and so on. And, of course, all smokers, please stop smoking. We've had warnings about coronaviruses before with SARS uh, and with MERS, the Middle East uh, Respiratory Syndrome. Uh, presumably, this isn't going to be the last one from a scientific perspective that will, um, will infect uh, mankind. That's absolutely correct. Uh, we are living in a world where we are so close to nature, but not in a good way. This isn't like sitting in... Uh, um, it's literally looking at the animals from a distance. This is somebody cutting down trees where the bats and the civets and the other creatures have their livelihoods and eating these 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 creatures. So I believe we will see more events like this. It's called a zoonotic event when a, um, a, a disease jumps from one species to another. Of course, the zoonosis, which we never talk about, is where we human beings are infecting animals, which is which does happen, of course. In the United States, President Donald Trump said he wanted to get people back to work within the next two weeks. But public health professor at George Washington University, Dr. Lena Wien, said another reality existed in which healthcare workers in New York were at breaking point and in many areas they did not have the necessary equipment. Here's a report from our partners at Bloomberg. If you talk to any of our frontline healthcare providers in New York and in other epicenters around the country, they will say that we are already at this breaking point. We are already seeing our hospital systems stretched to capacity. And what's extremely worrisome is that our healthcare providers who are on the front lines 
don't even have the basic equipment that they need in order to protect themselves, which frankly is something that I never thought we would see in this country. I mean, it was just two months ago that we saw the images emerging from China of nurses who had to reuse their masks for several days at a time, doctors who had to fashion their own gowns out of garbage bags. And now we're seeing this playing out all over the country. First, we're rationing masks. Then we're going to run out of doctors. And then we're also going to run out of hospital beds and ICU beds and other critical capabilities that will keep patients alive. I mean, I hate to present this dire picture, but this is what's happening in our country due to lack of preparedness. But all is not lost. We do have an opportunity to ramp up production dramatically in this country through a coordinated national effort. And we need everyone to continue to do their part to do social distancing and other measures that can reduce the rate of transmission in these epicenters, but as critically in other parts of the country, too, to prevent every part of our country from turning into the China and Italy scenario that we have seen playing out. So, Dr. Wen, there has been some growing discussion over the last week or so that perhaps it's time to think about getting the country, quote unquote, back to work and perhaps uh, kind of open up the economy somewhat from your perspective on the healthcare side. How do you view that? I mean, I understand the desire to get back to normal because, frankly, right now, life is not normal at all. It's not imaginable compared to where we were a month ago or two months ago. But we also have to look at the reality of where things are. We can't navigate based on our wish list. We have to navigate based on the reality. And the reality is that we have this urgent need to stabilize our healthcare system. We have an urgent need to ramp up testing because unless we do that, we have no idea of where we actually are. We have case counts every day of the number of people who are infected. But we don't know how accurate these counts are. In fact, basically every public health expert I know thinks that these counts are far off because we just don't have the testing capability to understand what's happening in our country. So unless we can shore up our healthcare system, unless we can get real data about what's going on, we can't let up on really the only effective intervention that we have at this time, which is social distancing. I wish that this were not the case. Don't get me wrong. I wish that we had testing up and running. I wish that our hospitals were not overflowing. But given the situation that we're in, we can't let up or else we are going to have tens of thousands of people die, maybe even more, because of our own inaction. Dr. Wen, I'm wondering, right now we're looking at uh, a recommendation that anyone from New York quarantine themselves for 14 days if they travel outside of this state. How prevalent is your estimates, is the research currently, is the virus in the United States beyond New York? In other words, if some of the hot spots are contained, will that be enough to sort of stave off a crisis situation in the rest of the United States? It's a great question. I think the answer is that we don't know because we don't know the true prevalence in other communities. But there's reason to believe that you can do both of these things at the same time. So mitigation efforts, meaning mitigation in these hotspot areas, as well as containment in areas that probably are not yet so affected, although very likely they are much more affected than we think. But still, there is a chance at that. And I think as long as there's a chance, we should be trying to do both, trying to to um, do everything we can to bolster the healthcare system in these hotspots and to reduce the rate of, of transmission in other areas too. 
Dr. Lena Wen, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your learned perspective on this issue. Dr. Lena Wen is an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University. She previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner. So, Lisa, still, I think what we're hearing from uh, Dr. Wen is that obviously uh, we are still at the you know relatively critical stages here, particularly in some of the hot spots. Uh, so, perhaps a little bit premature to think about uh, opening up the economy. There was a story that caught my attention this morning about how New York hospital workers are basically forgoing tests to see whether they have the virus. If they don't have symptoms, they're being told just to come to work because, A, they're needed, and, B, there aren't enough tests. And it just sort of highlights the fear uh, felt by a lot of people currently in the healthcare system. And I will tell you personally, I've spoken to people who are nurses in this situation, and it is a frightening situation at this point, and it's expected to peak in about two weeks. So a lot of concern about whether people who could potentially be saved will be able to save as well as the lives of a lot of the people who are on the front lines as hospital workers. This has been episode 5 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.